Welcome listeners to its Editor's Desk, the regular First Things podcast from here in New York, where I sit, Rusty Reno, editor of First Things, and I'm sitting at the Editor's Desk. And I have with me Andrew Basevich to talk about, well, initially to talk about a piece that he wrote for us a number of years ago, maybe even two decades ago, about a book by Max Boot called The Savage Wars of Peace. And it's just a great jumping off point, I think, for us to talk about um, American foreign policy and kind of where we've been in the last 20 years, which has been quite a quite a adventure. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. You know, that that was a uh, Max Boot's been around. I mean, it was really he was a young, bright young thing when that book came out in 01. I think it was bef- just before 9-11. If I'm, I think that's about right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you describe Max Boot as advocating a neo-imperial foreign policy. And um, so what is a neo-imperial foreign policy? And I guess, and has Max Boot changed any of his basic outlook since <laughs> uh, 2002? You probably want to ask Max, <laughs> but I think so. Uh I believe Max's book came out uh, pre-9-11, very much when confidence in American military power and perhaps even confidence in the sort of ideological tendencies informing history, uh, when all that was at its height. Neoconservatives were were riding high. And in retrospect, I would say I was actually rather kind to Max. <laughs> I do. I, 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 when I reread that review, I thought, ooh, yeah, hmm, yes, kind. I, th- I mean, uh, because I, at the time, I thought he and I were on the same team. Uh, conservatives people who had supported the Cold War. That was the larger context of things. But when the Cold War ended, there were these enormous questions of, you know, okay, well, now now, now that we are the sole superpower, what are we supposed to be doing with our power? And, and Max was inclined toward military activism. I was inclined toward mili- military caution, although those tendencies on his part and on my part uh, really didn't become fully clear until uh, after 9-11 and the uh, onset of the so-called global war on terrorism. Uh, Max was a true believer. Max was an enthusiastic supporter of the invasion of Iraq. I think I, I, I should apologize to Max for pretending to speak for him here. Mm. Uh, but I think he was a believer in the, in the, in the, in the project of using American power to spread liberal democracy. I was from the outset very wary of that. And as as events played out, uh, I think Max uh, rethought that enthusiasm. I know that I then became uh, very critical of post-9-11 U.S. national security policy, <laughs> and, and by extension, beat up on people like poor Max. 
who had been rather forthright in supporting uh, the post-9-11 imperial project. And I, I would call it that, an imperial project. Well, let's back up. So the imperial project was, I mean, there's two senses of, there's what you might call a realist imperialism and there's an idealist imperialism. <laughs> I mean, you know, to a certain extent, uh, you know, after the end of the Cold War, we, you know, there, at, at a realist level, you know, we really were, you know, the guardians of sea lanes and really throughout the globe. And so you could say that, you know, having all of our bases, nobody was arguing that we need to um, leave um, uh, Diego Garcia in the Indian Ocean. Right. Uh, so, so, what, so then as opposed to what I, what I would call an idealist imperialism, which I think kind of really boiled down to a conviction that at the end of the day, the whole world would become the United States. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, it sounds kind of crazy to say it out loud, but it did often kind of boil down to that, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think the George W. Bush administration at the highest levels uh, exemplified uh, what you just described. Uh, people like Vice President Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, uh, they, were, they were not interested in spreading democracy uh, and American ideals. They were about uh, affirming American global primacy and using what they perceived to be America, uh, you know, un, unchallengeable American military power to do that. Whereas somebody like Paul Wolfowitz, Deputy Secretary of Defense, very influential person for a, for a period of time, and Max Boot, and and other writers who at that time were sort of part of the Weekly Standard uh, group, and also, I think, President Bush, were genuinely idealistic, read the end of the Cold War, the outcome of the Cold War, as affirming the inevitability of a universal embrace of American-style democratic capitalism, and all that was needed was for smart people to give history a a nudge in the right direction. And I think in the eyes of the idealists, again, particularly people like Wolfowitz and, again, Max Boot and, uh, you know, Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol and others, 9-11 provided the opportunity to give history that, that necessary push. From my point of view, the result was catastrophe. Uh, and you know that became then one of the themes of, of my my own writing. How the hell could these smart people be so stupid? <laughs> uh, Max then uh, over time, Max is a smart guy. Uh, you know Max looked at the facts, and I think then adjusted his own perspective on these matters. And and today, not that I, you know, not not that following Max's writings is like one of my daily. Uh, 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 exercises, I think he has returned to a more realistic uh, camp. I looked back at a March 2001 review of Present Dangers, which was a collection of essays put together by Robert Kagan and Bill Kristol. Right. And at the end of that review, 
you point out another a number of omissions, um, one of which is the omission of any discussion of the economic factors driving globalization. And now, now that we have a former a BlackRock executive running our China policy for the Biden administration, that reality looms very large, obviously. But there wasn't what really arrested my attention is at the end, you point out that the ambitious, you know, globe bestriding ambitions were really a province of the American elite and that the American public circa, you know, in January of 2001 was had no interest whatsoever of spending blood and treasure on, uh, on these foreign projects, this Wilsonian idealism. And it's interesting. I think nine 11 was a, you would think it would be a setback an attack on our country, but it really was a golden opportunity because the public then shifted very, very forcefully behind this kind of global pro- global project, at least for, well, a, for a decent but, but, interval. Yeah, an interval. I mean, it, it it did shift and it didn't shift. You know what I mean by didn't shift is that uh, there there was a my interpretation there was a brief burst of enthusiasm for the war. Let's go get the bad guys. Let's let's, let's go punish those who did committed this horrific crime, and it was a horrific crime. But you recall, there, there was no, no mobilization of the country. No, we were told uh, to go shopping. <laughs> explicitly told to go shopping. Yes, I know. I remember uh, that. And that that remains, I think, a very telling sort of, of moment. Uh, so there may have been some cheering from the sidelines, but the American people didn't really sign up to participate in the war. And I think that uh, there are many reasons why the global war on terrorism didn't pan out. But I mean, among those many reasons is the fact that by 2004, 2005, uh, we found ourselves with uh, too much war and too few soldiers. Mm. Uh, And as the generals struggled with finding a solution to the very difficult problems that we ourselves had created in Afghanistan and Iraq. The fact that there were, were never enough soldiers, I think, was part of, not, the, not, not a sole explanation, but part of the problem. We, try, we tried to, we, we tried to uh, respond by uh, re- recruiting allies, mm-hmm. uh, a few of which responded with much enthusiasm. NATO was part of the war in Afghanistan, but uh, NATO was, I think, by everybody's uh, evaluation, did did not do well in Afghanistan. Uh, The the effort to put together, what did Rumsfeld call it? The Coalition of the Willing? Coalition, I remember Establishing a Coalition of the Willing uh, to fight the war in Iraq. Well, it turned out that there weren't too many people who were who were all that willing. We tried to hire mercenaries. We did hire mercenaries. We called them defense contractors, tens of thousands of them. But all of that package together didn't produce a an effective military force. Uh, so, and- so you your sense is that um, right this split uh, remained 
even though it was covered over by a kind of burst of enthusiasm, it, it continue. I think it probably continues to define our our situation. I mean, living in New York, it's clear that Hollywood, Silicon Valley, New York, these are hub Washington D.C. These are command posts in the global system, global economy, and you know clearly, powerful people here have a very powerful interest in sustaining the global system and our military and American power is, is crucial. It's the, it's the underpinning of that system. Uh, I think that's right. And I'm, we're, I'm shifting gears on you now away from the global war on terrorism. But I think as we, we, the country, uh, wrestles with the question of how to respond to the challenge of China and how does military power figure in that uh, problem? Uh, again, we it, it's there's no easy answers. Certainly, the American people have no particular interest in, in a war with the People's Republic. Uh, and I think what we see from the Pentagon is, and we've seen this in the past, an effort to figure out how advanced technology can provide a shortcut to the to the creation of a militarily effective response to a security challenge. I myself, I'm, I, I, I guess I'm kind of agnostic, but uh, I certainly don't see how technology is going to provide that response. I, I don't. I myself do not view China as an existential threat. Uh, I think we've got to share the planet with them. Uh, I don't think that's going to be easy to figure out what are the terms of the, of the sharing. Uh, but I'm I'm very wary of defining the relationship primarily in military terms. I don't think I don't think that's going to lead to a happy outcome. What about Ukraine? You know, I in I guess the Russians invaded in the final days of February, is my recollection. Yeah, but. Boy, the feeling I had in March was that I was surrounded by hysterical people uh, that were like anything, to do anything. And that struck me as a, a dangerous moment, actually. Um, you mean the hysterical people that wanted to do anything in order to strike back at Russia? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The send the MiGs to, right. to uh, maybe, I mean, didn't the Wall Street Journal publish something about, you know, uh, um, Bruting the possibility of a nuclear limited nuclear exchange, and I, I, I can't remember all these, but it was this general. Fortunately, it seems to have abated, and the administration, the president, seemed to be willing to tamp down, you know, overly, you know, any kind of uh, measures that might lead to escalation. But at least our press, our mainstream press, certainly drink has drunk deeply at the well of what you call the old Wilsonian temptation. Oh, I think there's no doubt about it. I mean, uh, let, let, let me try not to say anything that suggests that I'm sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. I'm not. Uh, the war began with an act of aggression. Uh, he's, he's brutal. Uh, I happen to think that the war could have been avoided, uh, that a, an effective negotiation could have satisfied Russian basic Russian national security interests. Uh, 
probably would have involved neutralizing Ukraine. Uh, there was some talk of that early on. Now it's gone by the board. Uh, and I suppose, you know, you could say, so what? We didn't avoid the war. The war happened. Uh, I don't claim to be a military expert. It's been decades since I was in the Army. But it was fascinating, I think, to watch how the expectations of a quick and easy Russian victory were foiled by events on the ground and the really staggering incompetence of the Russian army. <laughs> just, you just, it was one of those things you couldn't believe. It was uh, very, very so bad. Pardon? I, I, I agree. I found the first week to be very reassuring. In other and words, let, let, and, let, and let, it, let us not uh, t- take credit away from the Ukrainians. You know, exactly. Gallant, resistance, uh, determined to defend their country. Uh, and if I could interject here also, as I my discussion with my friends, I'm a, I'm a skeptic, I think, as you are, of neo-imperial foreign policy. But the Ukraine, the, those first weeks did indicate that people were willing to die to stay part of our system or the one that we constructed. I mean, they, they want to defend wait, the integrity of their own wait, country, wait. but they... So I, I'm, I'm not, I don't know that I would follow you beyond that. Okay, go uh, ahead. That they that they're willing to they're they're willing to die for the West. No, that's not the country. But they want uh, it. Clear. It seems as though they want to be they. They're willing to resist uh, the Russian aggression, uh, obviously out of a patriotic sense, but also you know they want to be part of they want to be part of our the th- the the system that we've constructed and the yes, Europeans I, yes. too. They've they've been a kind of a sobering up like. Well, wait a minute. You know, we can complain about the Americans, but ultimately, you know, we prefer the thing that that's been built up for the last seventy-five years to the alternatives. And and I'll 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 come across as more cynical than I am here <laughs> when I when I say that I think to some degree the Ukrainian political leadership has seized upon the war as an opportunity to make Ukraine's case for becoming part of the West. Mm. Uh, whether that's going to pan out or not, I don't know. You know, the, 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 I gather that the process of joining the EU is, is complicated and, and lengthy. I think that, the, I believe it requires unanimity yeah, uh, to admit all... a new nation to uh, NATO. I'm not sure that's going to happen anytime soon. But, you know, in every disaster, there's an opportunity, and I suspect that something of what's going on in the inner precincts of of Ukrainian politics is to try to get some positive results out of this horrific uh, disaster. Uh, you know, my own sense is that it is a horrific disaster. Certainly, for the uh, Ukrainian what, people, it's their country is being destroyed. Exactly, and that's why what what disturbs me, I think, is. The attitude that seems to prevail in Washington and, you know, where smart people congregate, where the imperative of bringing this war to an end as soon as possible takes a backseat to other sorts of calculations of of punishing Putin uh, that I think think it, 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 it becomes immoral. No, I where, share where are the dip- diplomatic efforts to end this thing 
so that we don't have more people being killed and more cities being destroyed. That has become an afterthought. No, I, I agree. I mean, there was kind of cheap talk about making this, you know, the Afghanistan for the Russians. You know, there, it's going to be their version of Afghanistan in the 80s for the Soviets, you know, mm-hmm. which means, you know, 10 years of war. Right. And so what, we're going to volunteer the Ukrainians to basically right. you know, die a slow, bloody death over 10 years so that we can gain some geopolitical advantages over Russia? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people are not going to say that out loud, but that does seem to be the thrust of, of U.S. policy. Uh, I don't know. You know who are the peacemakers? I think the 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 Pope. I haven't followed what the Pope's been saying, but I think the Pope has tried to avoid being drawn into becoming a partisan. Yes. In this yeah. war, I think that's uh, correct. And, yes. And to do what he can to foster conditions for a settlement. It's not evident to me that his efforts have have produced much of of, of substance. Shifting gears. When did isolationism become the epithet to um, reject even the moderate realism in foreign policy? Well, I think, you know, it goes back to the debate over whether or not the United States should enter World War II on behalf Mm. of Great Britain against Nazi Germany. And it was an intense debate, roughly between what? Uh, even I think it, I think debate began before the war began in, in September of 1939. But if we were sort of say between 1938 and December 7th of 41, our country was deeply split over this issue of how to respond to a Nazi Germany. Now, when you read about this in the papers, the the charge is that the anti-interventionists were motivated primarily by anti-Semitism. I must say <laughs> I reject that. I do accept the fact that there were anti-Semites in the anti-interventionist movement. But I've long believed that the principal argument against intervention, as it was made in 1938, 39, 40, was that a large number of Americans didn't want to repeat the experience of 1917, 1918, 1919. Mm -hmm. When we had intervened in a war, we lost 116,000 Americans. We certainly didn't fulfill Wilson's uh, uh, promises. And there were considerable number of Americans at that time who said, we were snookered. <laughs> we, we, were, we were fooled. We're never going to make this mistake again. Now, they, they were wrong in their judgment. It, it was imperative for us to enter the war against Nazi Germany. But because they were wrong, that doesn't make them evil. And I think that's when the epithet of isolationism as, as an all-purpose way of, of, of branding proponents of military restraint, if I may put it that way, branding them as beyond the pale, uh, that's, that's when that came into being. And because of the, the way that World War II, even to the present moment, sort of sort of overshadows our culture, that epithet has, has lasting value. Uh, and mm. so, it's, so it's, you know, it, it's, it, it, it repeatedly appears in debates over U.S. foreign policy, regardless of how uh, accurate uh, it, it actually is. 
you call somebody an isolationist and you basically declare them to be Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, Charles, <laughs> Charles Lindbergh. Who was an anti-Semite. Yes. But but yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's it it's it, it that that has perverted the the debate over US foreign policy for uh, for decades now. I don't, you know, it's the issue is not isolationism versus liberal internationalism. Those labels don't really tell us much. But we haven't figured out a way to move beyond them uh, and, and come up with a new way of framing the debate over U.S. foreign policy that actually uh, reflects the existing circumstances. And existing circumstances are changing radically. You know, when we think about things like the rise of China and the, China and the, the climate crisis and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the old, the old formulas don't work. Well, there's also uh, domestic changes. One of the things that I I think our leaders in Washington need to take a full measure of is the fragility of our power. I mean, it is it is significant. I think um, we can. There's always a peril of underestimating and overestimating, and some of our adversaries um, can underestimate our power. Uh, and that could lead to all kinds of bad things happening. I think 9-11 was a grotesque. I mean, I think Osama bin Laden really thought we were a decadent country that would collapse if 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 pressed. Um, and he was very wrong about that. Uh, but on the other hand, you can overestimate. It is the social contract in America is very frayed. In, and our ability to project power really does depend in a democracy on bottom line support of ordinary people of elites who make the decisions. And I, you can, I, you can I cannot that tell that, you how strongly I agree with you that on, on the point of, of the fragility of our system, of our society. I mean, it, you, it, it, I think you, I'm pretty sure you and I are on the same side of the, of the abortion debate. I mean, I'm a pro-lifer. That said, when I, Observe the response to the Supreme Court decision. You know the the furor. I I worry. You know I I I I worry about whether or not we still have the capacity to. You know maintain some level of of comity in these fundamental matters. Uh, I mean, I think the abortion uh, is is one example. And Trumpism is an example, and, and it's, I say Trumpism advisedly because it's it's much more than Trump. You know what 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 caused? How many votes did he get the second time? Seventy four million, I think. Right. What what, what caused him to get seventy four million votes, despite his manifest incompetence, in my view. Uh, says something very important yeah people are angry about where the country is yeah uh, I was, uh, yeah i i was um i was in idaho on in summer 2019 my car broke down and i was at a, tw- a two and a half hour tow truck ride and the tow truck driver a 60 year old guy did you vote for trump oh yeah i voted for trump <laughs> so what about 2020 he said if we go to a war with iran i'm not voting for him because it was a 
Yes. And, uh, and then the Uber driver was a 50 year old woman to take me to the car rental place the next day. She said exactly the same thing. So it was pretty clear that, wow, they, his voters had no appetite whatsoever for a next stage of conflict. Um, I'd be very curious to know what their opinions are about the Ukraine too. It was, it'd be kind of interesting. It's too bad you didn't keep their phone numbers for a follow up call. (laughs) What? And another, we have a, I think a mutual friend, Dr. J, as he's called at the Air Force Academy, who was, um, um, fought in the, uh, in the Iraq war in the, in the Iraq. Oh, J-Man. Uh, J-Man. Yeah. yeah. I, I said to him, and this is back to our fragility. Um, there's a, there's a fragility in the social contract, but our military is not in that great of a shape. And, uh, I said, well, at least 20 years, we didn't really have anything to show for it, but at least we have a military that's well-trained for combat. And he said, no, 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 no. We're really well-trained in asymmetrical combat, but mm. we're very, very, uh, uh, you know, we're, we have no sense of what it means to actually get hit hard by an adversary with comparable mm-hmm. technological capacity. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. Cause well, you know, uh, again, I'm very distant from all that, but you know, they've been running, uh, you know, foot patrols with a, a dozen soldiers for over the course of 20 years, in and out, in and out, these multiple deployments. Uh, yeah, you probably forget about what it is to put together a, a division size operation, which is complicated. Uh, so I can, I, I, I'm not in touch with the military, but I can easily imagine that there are distortions resulting mm. from the long wars. Uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan that may have uh, left a, a dubious legacy in terms of what the military can and can, can and cannot uh, do today. Um, I'm glad you know J-Man. He's a remarkable oh, he's a, I've, person. I know him very well. Remarkable person. <laughs> he is. Um, the, I mean, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And it does seem, if we want to project forward for the next half dozen years, that uh, American power really will probably remain super eminent. Do you think that that's an unjust optimism? I've often been accused of being an unrepentant American optimist. Well, what do we mean by, by power here? We're talking about military power, hard power? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, the the Chinese uh, are engaged in a military buildup. The purpose of their buildup is not quite clear. That is to say, their ambitions are not quite clear. They have ambitions, uh, but are they regional or are they global? I tend to think that they're regional, which means that uh, a a collision uh, between the United, a military collision between the United States and China, I think, is not inevitable. <clears throat> but are we talking about economic power? Well, the Chinese economy apparently grows by leaps and bounds from one year to the next, one year to the next. Uh, The projections are it will overcome, it will be the largest in the world within what, the next five to 10 years. I myself think that the, the, the ruling class in China is probably going to encounter some bumps in the road. Uh, that may uh, challenge 
their hold on power, but that's mere speculation. They know what they're doing economically. Uh, it's hard for me to say the same about what we're doing. Well, fair enough. Are we talking? Are we talking about soft power? Yeah, I think I think we're way ahead. You know, I mean, it's, it's, we don't necessarily have to endorse uh, the products of you know Hollywood and, and uh, the music business and and, and the like. But there does seem to be something about our capacity to generate soft power that is matchless. I don't know that that translates into mm. favorable impressions of our culture, you know, our ideals. Uh, but the stuff sells well, and I don't think the Chinese or anybody else is going to catch up with us anytime soon. How about our uh, our, our influence in in the sphere of international politics? You know, we we assume going back to World War II that we have this capacity to to lead. You know, particularly within the the, the sphere of the West, that uh, the Brits, French, uh, after the war, the Germans will will heed our will follow our leadership. Uh, and of course, that capacity was tremendously important to us, particularly through the the Cold War. Some might argue that the Ukrainian crisis shows that that capacity to lead is still very much uh, with us. You know, does the European allies more or less uh, defer to to Washington? On the other hand, I I haven't followed this closely, but outside of Europe in what we used to call the global south or the third world. I'm not sure what the current, the current term is. I think there's evidence of less enthusiasm for, for following, adhering to Washington's dictates. Would it, with what implications? I have no idea. I guess my long answer to your very pertinent question is it's kind of too soon to tell. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. My sense is that uh, a great deal turns on leadership. Ah. So we have less margin for error than we had during the go-go years after the end of the Cold War when anything seemed possible and you could spend down a lot of – you could make mistakes and still recover. Yeah, but but you're, I think it's a very good point. And when you survey the what we might call the leadership landscape – it's hard to do so with a sense of optimism. I, I, I do not consider myself a partisan. You know, I, I wish President Biden well. Uh, Certainly on foreign policy, I wish him well. But he, uh, he's, he's headed for, to be a, a failed one-term presidency. Uh, I'm okay with that. Again, I'm not, I'm not rooting for him. But then, then who? Trump is probably going to make another bid for the presidency. Or somebody more or less like him from the Republican Party. I view that prospect with great trepidation. Who among the Democrats? Uh, I, I, I don't see who, who, who's going to step up. Who's, who's going who's to command the, the enthusiastic support of the American people? Who, 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 who knew that Abraham Lincoln was going to be a great president, you know, in 
sometime around 1859. So, so maybe we'll see, but it's hard to look at the political landscape with a sense of optimism uh, that the leadership you referred to is about to, uh, about to appear. Well, let's hope. <laughs> Indeed. Let's hope. Hey, thanks for your time on this uh, podcast, and thanks for your many contributions to First Things. And I uh, hope our readers go back and look at the archives. Andy Basevich um, and his many reviews and essays in First Things Magazine. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>